We'll open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, and we will finish up this little series that we've begun a few weeks ago on the gospel class. What this is, is a, um, a short course that we've taken so that we could, sorry, I don't know how to go back there. There we go. We can look at the gospel and really create some curriculum that we can study even in the future for how to know the gospel better and how to proclaim it more faithfully. And today we're going to talk about becoming a more faithful slash fearless witness. Luke chapter 12. I want to read the first 12 verses for you and then we'll direct our attention to this passage. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, Jesus began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, what you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. Whatever you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I warn you whom you are to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents and yet not one of them is forgotten before God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about what, about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. In his book titled War Made New, Author Max Boot traces the history of war. It's a fascinating read from A.D. 1500 to today. And his plot is to show how, how technology and innovation have changed the way that wars have been fought. Boot shows how from the invention of gunpowder to the use of drones and smart bombs, the goal of every soldier... Every general, every political leader has been to win war with the minimum amount of casualties. In the final section of Boot's book, he speaks about the future of war using robots and computers and satellites and drones and the planned spreading of diseases, all with the goal of keeping the personnel on your side out of danger. The book's observation is obvious. All military advances 
involve minimizing the soldier's contact with danger. However, here in Luke chapter 12, we find a very different strategy of the Lord Jesus Christ for his foot soldiers, his disciples, his followers, his evangelists. He's readying his men for the ministry they're going to face, the battles against darkness, the battles against people who hate the Lord. But Jesus' aim is not, not to keep them from danger, rather to equip them to head straight into it. It's the exact opposite of conventional warfare. His strategy for his followers then is the same for us today. And as unlikely as it seems, the major hostility of some of this pushback that we're gonna get on gospel presentation actually will come from the religious establishment and it did for him as well. The Lord's instruction here is much more than a simple exhortation to proclaim the gospel and to be faithful witnesses. Jesus focuses the disciples' attention on the motivations for faithfulness and the inhibitions for a lack of faithfulness. The heart of the issue is taking the gospel to the world. The major threat is being afraid to because there are indeed real dangers. Now, I understand what we're doing today and kind of finishing up our four weeks in the gospel class. We've talked about the theology of the gospel, the explanation of the gospel, the defense of the gospel, our witness and testimony using uh, what the Lord has done in our life with the gospel. And there's very, very few things that a pastor or preacher can bring up that will bring more instant conviction than evangelism. I think that it's easier to preach on giving to the poor or fighting some sin and everyone finds immediately themselves wanting to lean into that. Leaning into evangelism, though, is, is, is tough because we have to overcome inhibitions and fear. These verses in Luke 12 bring instant conviction to my own heart. I trust they will yours as well. Let's begin with some self-evaluation. Why do you, why do I, why do we struggle have such trouble sharing the life-giving and life-saving, eternity-altering message of Jesus Christ with others. We have the greatest news in the world, and yet my suspicion is we didn't spend most of the day Saturday going and telling everyone and anyone who would listen about that news why. I'm confident that most of us can spout off a pretty accurate list of why we should be a witness but this passage actually deals with why we struggle to be witnesses. If we boil it all down, all of our reasons can be reduced to the lowest common denominator of fear, being afraid. What are we afraid of? Oh, we're afraid if we share the gospel, we'll be rejected. We're afraid of being ridiculed and made fun of. Afraid of being labeled a Jesus freak or a religious zealot, afraid of being persecuted, perhaps maybe, maybe in the fear of being fired, demoted, passed by, ignored. We fear being left out, looked down upon. We fear raising questions in the gospel presentation that we might not be able to answer, or maybe just simply being embarrassed. 
Fear is the central issue in our heart that keeps us from proclaiming the gospel that dissolves all fear. Isn't that interesting? So how can we deal with these fears? And by the way, I'm not just guessing when I say fear is the issue. That's exactly the the target that Jesus aims at in this passage. So this question is the one that Jesus raises and answers with his disciples. How can you become a fearless witness? In order to understand that, let let me give you some context. We can't just drop into Luke 12 without some orientation. If you look back at chapter 11, Verses 17 to 26, Jesus casts out a demon out of a man who could not speak. And listen, this is important. This will come back to us in a minute. He was then accused of operating under the power of Satan when he cast out this demon. In verses 27 and 28, he settles forever the wrongful exaltation of his mother Mary. They say, blessed are the one where you nursed and he says no blessed are the ones who believe in verses 29 to 36 he instructs the mounting and building crowd about his being the son of man which leads him to set an open trap for the Pharisees to walk into and in verse 37 is where the real action begins now we need to read this because look at the first phrase of chapter 12 under these circumstances what circumstances Let me tell you those circumstances and then it'll make a lot of sense why Jesus says what he's going to talk to us about today. Look beginning in verse 37. Now when he had spoken, Jesus had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him and he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal, but the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter But inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. Nice house guest, right? He didn't ceremonially wash. He knows that they're judging him before that and he brings up this issue of cleansing and goes right after him. You foolish ones. Again, nice dinner, lunch guest. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? You're worried about ceremonies, but you're not dealing with your heart. But give that which is within as charity. And then all things are clean for you. But cursed are you. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay the tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb. Yet disregard the justice and the love of God. Your conscience is built on those things for which you can show off, but not things that are going on in your heart. But these are the things that you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues, the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs and people who walk over them and are unaware of it. One of the lawyers, this is a theologian, said to him in reply, teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. But he said to him, so sorry. No, he said to him, Woe to you lawyers and theologians as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to hear while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers because it was they who killed them and you build their tombs. 
For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles and some of them they will kill and some they will persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you lawyers for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter and you hindered those who are entering. Verse 53. When they left lunch, when they left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. That's important context because it was, look at the next phrase, under these circumstances that Jesus speaks. In the middle of this persecution, him being hounded, he calls his disciples to be fearless witnesses. So he's calling them to be fearless in a context that is hostile toward them. Does that make sense? By the way, at the heart of this passage, the word fear is mentioned five times in three verses, which becomes the centrifuge of his teaching. Correcting wrongful fear fear will be the backbone then of what we're gonna look at this morning. So pulling it together, in Luke 12, 1 to 12, Jesus provides five lessons for becoming a fearless witness. And the context makes sense why he would do such. Five lessons, divine lessons, because they come from him, the Lord himself, five divine lessons for fearless or faithful, same thing, witnessing. These are all built around contrast, by the way. The first is in verses one to three. Don't fear hypocrites. Instead, fear hypocrisy. Don't fear hypocrites. Instead, fear hypocrisy. Under the circumstances of these, these mounting crowds against him and, and wanting to, to kill him and plotting to murder him. After so many thousands of the multitude had gathered together, so many people, they were stepping on one another he began saying, not to the crowd, but to his disciples first of all, even though the crowd would have overheard this. And this is what he says. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you've said in the dark shall be heard in the light. Whatever you've whispered in the inner rooms shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. It's clear from verse one, Jesus has now drawn a crowd, literally of thousands, so much so that they're stepping on top of each other. It's like leaving a, a Royals or a Chiefs game in a hurry. Why? They were trying to trap him. Others were just gathering to watch a fight. Jesus, under these circumstances, gives a sidebar, a footnote. He looks to his disciples as he often does and says, let me give you some perspective and right out of the gate, he gives them a warning. Beware, beware, take heed, listen up, men. Beware of what? The leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven is yeast. It's yeast in bread. It's used so often in the Bible as an illustration of influence and usually of evil influence. So what was the awful evil influence of the Pharisees? What was it? 
Hypocrisy. The Greek word for hypocrisy is an interesting word. It's, it's the same word that's used in plays for actors. The sin of hypocrisy is creating an image in someone's mind about yourself that is different from the reality. Let me give you another way of thinking about hypocrisy. Hypo- hypocrites hide their faith from sinners and hide their sins from the faithful. So you could define hypocrisy as this, hiding your faith from sinners, that's evangelism, or hiding your sins from the faithful. In other words, we're portraying ourselves as something we're not. And in this context, Jesus is saying, you have the life-changing, life-giving, eternity-altering message of the gospel, and you're not telling anyone. On the other side, there are people who he just confronted who look so good on the outside, but inside they are sinful wretches. You know, you've probably gotten this as well. I've shared the gospel with people before. You ever gotten this and someone says, well, I don't want to come to your church or any church because church is full of hypocrites. And there was a while early in my life, my life with Christ, I used to defend that. And anymore, I say, you know what? You're right, and there's room for another one if you want to come. You're right. We are working on our hypocrisy. Look at verse 2. Jesus shows the foolishness of this hypocrisy. He says, why are people hypocritical? Because there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed. Nothing that will be not known. and, And hidden that will not be known. Accordingly... This is an explanation. Whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. Whatever you have whispered in the inner rooms shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. Look at these contrasts. Darkness, light, private, public. Classical reversal of theme that the Lord uses so often when he teaches. The private utterances and acts will become the most public before the Lord. It's God's exposure that makes hypocrisy useless in the short term and the long run and the heroic done in private hero, heroic deed done in private he will honor in the end notice the theology here why why is this the case because God is omniscient he sees all he will reveal all Romans 2:16 God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus Psalm 139:12 even the darkness is not dark to you night is as bright as day darkness and light are alike to you Hebrews 4, there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Listen, we serve a God who is an exposing and a revealing God. A frightening and a wonderful principle there. I often think of Psalm, excuse me, Proverbs 28, 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. You can say that this way. What you cover, God will uncover. But what you uncover, God's grace will cover. Specifically, by the way, here, he, he targets gossip and slander. It's really interesting. Whatever you have said and whispered, in secret will be revealed in 
the judgment. He talks about shouting from the roof. There was no CNN, no Fox News then. The nearest equivalent was standing on a roof and shouting the news, which a town crier would do. He says your inner room, the Tamion, a home's innermost apartment, the most private location will ultimately be made public. Not only action, but speech will be evaluated. All public knowledge to him. And I think there's also a law of reaping and sowing here where he says, just remember that what you say in private If you love the Lord, the exposing grace of God will make that public. If a person has something to hide, this truth is a warning. But if your heart is pursuing virtue, it's an encouragement. These Pharisees had a desire to impress people that made them live a double life. They were not on the inside what they were on the outside. Jesus had just used this illustration to say, you clean the outside of the cup and inside it's full of despicable sewage and you're okay to drink from it because the outside is clean. He says, don't fear the hypocrites who are there under these circumstances to try to destroy Jesus and his men. They're not the problem. They're not the threat. What's coming from the outside in on our witness is not the threat. It's what's on the inside that comes out. Don't fear the hypocrites. Fear being a hypocrite. Fear hypocrisy yourself. Which leads us to a second lesson. Don't fear the threat of men. Fear the threat of God. This is the core of the of the passage, we'll spend a little more time here than our other points, so don't, don't panic. And I say to you, my friends, oh, I love that. He's looking at these enemies that have surrounded him, thousands of people waiting to watch a fight. He looks at his, his men and his friends. I say to you, my friends, here's the imperative. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body after that have no more that they can do. Do you feel, do you hear the fingernails on the chalkboard at such a statement? There's a man with a a gun to your head, a sword at your heart, and I tell you, there's nothing to fear with him. Does that not seem counterintuitive? It only seems that way in comparison to what he says next. But I warn you, whom you should fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast him to hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents and yet not one of them is forgotten before God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are of more value than many sparrows. Three, five uses of fear in three verses. Now listen, Jesus does not guarantee that he will protect his disciples or us and are in our physical life. Can, can you just stop right there? We live in a world that's all about self-protection, self-defense, making sure that you can live. Jesus does not promise physical life to his followers. Instead, he offers eternal life. All of these men would die because of the gospel. 
he might require martyrdom of some of his disciples. The premise of this remark is that God has sovereign care over life here and in eternity. I mean, think of the history of God's representatives. From the prophets to John the Baptist to Jesus himself, persecution, rejection, and death. Should we expect anything substantially different? My friends, this tenderness. And the point of verse four is that all a man can do to you is kill you. And after that, he's done. That means he has no control over you, the real you, the the eternal part of you that's going to live forever somewhere. He can't do anything to that once you're dead. There's something even more frightening than someone who could kill you. And that something is someone. It's God, and there's a reason for that fear. Verse five, I warn you whom to fear. Fear the one, this is God himself, who after he has killed, now we know that he is the one who really has power over life and death. He has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. In other words, it's better to fear the judge than those with no real authority. Jesus tells us that God stands in contrast to people who can only kill us. But God has the authority to judge after death. It's the only time Luke uses this word that we translate hell. It's Gehenna. It refers to the place of the dead, the place where the uh, people are punished and put into lasting judgment. It's named after the location in the valley of the sons of Hinnom, which is a ravine, a little uh, depression south and west of Jerusalem, served as a trash heap, Material dead criminals were discarded and burned there. It was always burning. He used that as a picture of hell. It was also the place, by the way, that wicked kings had used earlier in Israel's history for the worship of Baal Moloch, which included offering babies and children and flaming sacrifices. This term, Gehenna, hell, could not have had a grislier or more dishonorable association to the hearers. Jesus says, I warn you to fear the one who can judge in hell. The doctrine of hell is perhaps the most unpopular topic of discussion in our day. Most disbelieve that hell even exists and those who do take it seriously have a very unbiblical set of ideas about it. Oh, it's where all my friends are. I'll go and meet them there. Oh, it's just temporary. Oh, it's not as bad as people think. And others think there's an expectation that some may end up there, but little expectation that they themselves are on the road to destruction. Ah, Spurgeon's words. Just remember what Spurgeon said. Oh, brothers and sisters, if sinners will be damned, At least let them leap to hell over our bodies. 
that they will perish there after that. Let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay and not madly to destroy themselves. If hell must be filled, Spurgeon says, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for, end quote. Jonathan Edwards speaks to us from the grave. He says, speaking of those who have gone to hell, if we could speak to them and inquire of them one by one whether they expected when alive and when they used to hear about hell ever to be the subjects of such misery, we doubtless should hear one and then another say, no, I never intended to come here. I laid out matters otherwise different in my mind. I thought I should contrive well for myself, better plan. I thought my scheme good. I intended to take care eventually, but death came upon me unexpected. I did not look for it at the time and in the manner that it came. It came as a thief. Death outwitted me. God's wrath was too quick for me. Oh, my cursed foolishness. I was flattering myself and pleasing myself with vain dreams of what I would do hereafter. And when I was saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction came upon me. And then later in that same sermon, Jonathan Edwards says, but you've come to an extraordinary opportunity. A day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands in it calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners. It's hard to think about hell. It's full of everything we dread, physical pain, loneliness, darkness, which accentuates our fear, regret, terror, and the absence of another chance. You know, I was thinking about God's interaction with saints and sinners, his interaction with death. Just wrap your mind around this. Worldwide, three people die every second on average. That's 180 every minute, nearly 11,000 every hour. And if the Bible is right about what happens to us after death, that means that more than 250,000 people every single day show up before God and are cast into hell or received into heaven. He is constantly acquainted with the pain and anguish of death, the eternity of hell, and the bliss of heaven. I mean, just three, six, nine, 12, 15, 18, 21, 24, 27, 30. In the last 10 seconds, 30 people met eternity. God never forgets the realities of heaven and hell and eternity, and neither should we. Look at the contrast in verse 6. It's a wonderful antidote on the loving care of God. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. He knows the birds. 
you're old, er, <laughs> you remember the song, his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Note the movement here and the strangeness of it. Fear not them that kill the body. Fear God because you know God. Fear God. And then he goes to sparrows. Insignificant and worthless little tiny snacks, meals. God cares for them. And if the creator loves sparrows, it would be inconceivable that he would ever forget or forsake someone, a man or a woman made in his own image. And then he puts an exclamation point on his encouragement in verse seven by discussing, of all things, drum roll, hair. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. I did some research on hair. A blonde person has about 145,000 hairs on their scalp. A brunette has about 120,000 hairs and a redhead has about 90,000 hairs. But notice that this text doesn't tell us that he knows the number of hairs on our heads. He has each hair numbered. So in the shower this morning, as you might have been washing your hair, he could have elbowed the angels and said, there goes 437, there goes 684. There's 936 on your jacket. He's got them all numbered. I don't think this is hyperbole. That's how intimate his knowledge is of us. Sparrows, the smallest birds, these were caught, skinned, killed, roasted, consumed, poor man's food. The cost was about two for a penny. Luke shows that for the price of two pennies, an extra one was thrown in, you get five for two cents. Hair and sparrows. If he cares about them and he cares infinitely more about us, what does that tell you? Because the context is heaven and hell. The threat of man can only kill you. The threat of God can judge you forever. That that motivates us to be fearless. A third divine lesson for fearless, faithful witnessing. Don't fear confessing Christ. Fear denying him. Fear denying Christ. Now, this is worthy of an entire study, but I don't think it's as complicated as some have made it out to be. He says in verse eight, I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men... The Son of Man shall confess him also before the angels of God, but he who denies me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. This is the simplest and most straightforward of these five lessons in this text. The issue is a disciple's ability to express his commitment to Christ before others faithfully. Up to this point, by the way, Luke has used the term Son of Man uh, in in an indirect way for Jesus to refer to himself, but this is explicit. Mark eight thirty eight records the same lesson. We studied this a few years ago. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation, a sinful generation, the son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of the Father with his holy angels. The greatest fear ought not be 
what do people think of me when, when, I, when I talk about Christ and that prohibits us and discourages us from witnessing? The greatest fear ought to be, what does God think when I don't? Can we use the vernacular when I chicken out? Jesus anticipates that concern. Jesus anticipates that fear. Jesus anticipates that tension. This is the simplest of the five lessons, by the way, but I think it raises the most gut-wrenching response. What happens to those who've been ashamed? What happens to those who've bailed out, chickened out, lost your courage? What happens to those who have even, in a moment of weakness, denied even being a Christian at all? That brings us to the fourth lesson. Don't fear momentary weakness, fear permanent rejection. Don't fear momentary weakness, fear permanent rejection. This comes, uh, brings up the issue of blasphemy and the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I wish I could count the number of people who've sat in my living room, in my office, at Starbucks, in a coffee shop, at a, over a meal, who have expressed horrific anxiety that they may have perhaps committed the unpardonable sin and blasphemed God and therefore are beyond the pale and reach of salvation. Let's look into that a little bit. Everyone, verse 10, who will speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him. What is this talking about? Well, throughout church history, this has been a text, a passage that's been ripped out of its context, misused and corrupted to teach a whole cornucopia of errors. Of the three times this issue of the unpardonable sin is discussed by our Lord, this is the most graphic and this is the most disturbing. Now, it's impossible for us not to think about the other ones. We looked at this when we were in Mark chapter three, um, Matthew 12, 31 and 32, Mark 3, 28 to 29. Jesus talks about this as well. They both give an account of him talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And both of these passages place this difficult saying, listen, immediately after the charge is brought against him that he casts out demons by the power of Satan. What did we just read in Luke, 8, Luke 11? That he cast out demons and they said, you do that by the power of the devil. This account, I think, by the way, is different from Matthew 12 and Mark 3. I think this came up often. Uh, this happened in Judea. The other ones happened in Galilee. This man, uh, the man healed in Luke 11 was dumb, whereas the man in Mark and Matthew was blind. Luke, being a doctor, would not have been confused by that. And what happens after these events is different in each account, all to say this is something Jesus taught on several times in multiple places. Now, to get an understanding of what's being taught, notice the difference in verbs. Speak a word against. That references an occurrence, an incident, a moment of weakness. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man. But blasphemy is different. It means to rail at, to continually revile. 
It's translated in Luke 23, 29 as hurling abuse at. And grammatically, it's an aorist participle, which if I can bore you for a second, means it's something definitive. Here's the difference. It's explained by simply looking at the passage and seeing the difference in the object. The Son of Man represents the humanity of Christ, the pre-Easter Jesus. Whoever says something in denial of him, that can be forgiven. Insert name Peter, right? But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit clearly is the God of the Old Testament. And what he's saying is if you, t- this the context, Remember, all three times this is used. If you're saying that Jesus is who he is, does what he does, performs the miracles that he does because he is under the power of the devil, that is unforgivable. You have just taken your only savior out of the equation and made him demonic. Does that make sure why, make sense why you can't be forgiven? That's unforgivable because if you have no savior to forgive sins, there is impossible, it's impossible to be forgiven. You have self-condemned yourself by taking the solution out of the equation. That's the point. Blasphemy is not a single incident of weakness. It's a pattern in one's life. Peter and his denial was different than Judas and his denial. Living illustrations. Daryl Bach says, it might be better to speak of denial of nerve versus denial of heart. All of us have failed on our nerves. But denial of heart to turn away and say, Jesus is not God, Jesus is not the Savior, he is demonic, that's what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit means. And even a person, I believe, who thinks that momentarily, who says that temporarily and repents from that can still be forgiven. This is someone who dies in the condition of denying that Christ is the Savior. Blasphemers have reached a verdict. Their decision appears to be irrevocable. And the essence of this sin against the Holy Spirit can be condensed to just one word, impenitence, refusing to repent in the light of the clear knowledge of the gospel. Now, footnote, okay? This is important. Someone who is concerned and worried that they might have committed the unpardonable sin is certainly someone who has not If there's any sign of repentance, any desire for repentance, then this in itself is evidence that the Holy Spirit is still working. God has too much wisdom to try to bring souls to repentance when repentance is impossible. So can I make it simple for you? If you are afraid that you might have committed the unpardonable sin, guess what? You haven't. That very fear proves it. And Christ is ready to forgive even today. So when you're, when you're witnessing and you chicken out, don't bail out, don't say I'm not a Christian anymore. Don't fear momentary weakness, fear permanent rejection. And if you have not done that, then rejoice. And then lastly, don't fear sharing the truth, fear being ignorant of the truth. We're gonna extrapolate from this principle from the apostle's example to us. Don't fear sharing the truth, fear being ignorant of it, of the truth. 
Verse 11, he gives them a prophecy. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, wow, is that a kind of an outline of the book of Acts, isn't it? Do not become anxious about how or what you should speak in your defense or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you that in that very hour, you'll have what you ought to say. You know, you gotta be careful here. This doesn't mean stop studying. This doesn't mean don't prepare. I remember a man telling me uh, he was standing in front of a, a chapel at a Christian college and he was just joking, but he said, you know, I, I, I prayed all the week that the Lord would, I've had confidence that he would tell me what to say in this moment. And now that I'm standing here, I know that the Lord is telling me you should have studied. So th- that's not what this is about. This closes Jesus' sidebar to his men. His final lesson in this class session is about to end. Again, don't be afraid of sharing Christ and his gospel. And when you do, you are going to get in trouble. 11 men who are listening to him, minus Judas. The application for the disciples is similar but different to us. Jesus promises them you will know what to say. They didn't have a Bible yet. You will know what to say in your faith, in me, at that moment. I will give you a defense for the truth. The Holy Spirit would inspire them by divine supernatural revelation on what to say. You see Paul doing that before Felix and Festus and Agrippa. But for us, it's a little different. We have the record, the biblical record and detailed instruction of what to say regarding the truth. Peter tells us always be ready to give a defense, an explanation for the hope within us. So it comes down to this. Do we understand, this is why we've had the gospel class, do we understand it well enough to articulate it? Don't fear telling people about it. Fear being ignorant of it. Look, I think one of the reasons that some people, we talked about this earlier, get into a situation they feel compelled to share the gospel and they freeze, they chicken out, they don't do it, is they're afraid they don't know enough or enough in that moment to share. And that could be true. But there's a solution to that, right? What we've done the last four weeks, studying and talking with a family, talking as a discipleship, as a care group. What will we say when? What will we say if? What can we say to initiate conversations? Don't be afraid to share the truth. Be afraid that you won't be prepared. And if you're afraid that you won't be prepared, then you will prepare. Fearlessness grips us. But the Great Commission is to go into all the world and make disciples of Christ. You know what I found just anecdotally? I hope I don't lose credibility. I, I have chickened out before talking to someone about the gospel when you, you kind of sense this is a good opportunity. I think we all have. That fear can paralyze you. That fear can discourage you. That fear can dis- dissuade you from doing it again. But I have been faithful before in telling people the good news. You know what I found? When you get in the moment of witnessing, it's never 
as bad as you feared. Especially going back to last week, if you'll say, do you mind if I tell you something miraculous that's happened in my life? The hope that's within me. If there's a smile on your face and a joy in your heart and you don't feel like you're selling Amway, you feel like I'm telling you something that's in my life that I want you to experience because I've enjoyed it as well. I pray that God will cause us to be faithful and fearless witnesses.